As we continue our study in the book of Galatians, we come to perhaps the most familiar passage in this book, but also perhaps one of the most regularly misunderstood. In the last part of the letter, we find two contrasting realities. The flesh, which is mentioned eight times from uh, verse 13 of chapter 5 to the end of the book, and the spirit. I mentioned this last week, but if you're reading the NIV, the 1984 version as I am, you find instead of the flesh, you find the phrase the sinful nature. The newer NIV version has the flesh with a footnote. Um, Translators have engaged in interpretation, which is sometimes necessary. And so rather than putting the flesh, they have put sinful nature. But I think they've made a mistake here. The word that Paul uses is in Greek is sarx, and it has several meanings. It begins with flesh, that is the physical substance, and then from there it can mean the body, even though another word is oftentimes used for that, or what it means to be mortal, flesh and blood. But I don't think Paul is using this in a literal sense. Rather, he is pointing to something. I want to repeat something I said last week. Um, I think there's no doubt that the way you view the body will determine how you view this passage. If you think that the body isn't of itself evil, then that's how you're going to view this passage. But according to Scripture, we are embodied creatures. Having a body is a part of who we are. And this is what was given to us by the Creator. This is how God made us. If you follow the paradigm of creation, fall, and redemption, we find that in each, a human being has a body. That is to say, Adam and Eve weren't some type of spirits in the Garden of Eden until they ate from the tree and then suddenly they had bodies. It's something that we find that is true throughout from creation all the way through redemption. And so in Genesis 2, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. I do think that living after Adam and Eve's sin, it is so tempting to see the physical as only evil and to see the spiritual as the only place where we can really have honest dealings with God. And that's spiritual is all things that are good. By the way, early heresies in the church tried to discount the goodness of creation. And so they argued that in fact it was not God who had created the world, but a lesser God a demigod, and this God had created the world and brought the material into being, and that's what's evil, and that's what's wrong with us. This is simply not the case. We are embodied. To be human is to have a body. But a body is not all that there is to us. And that's why I think Paul isn't making a dichotomy between uh, the flesh and the spirit, the body versus the spirit. Um is that on the one side you have body, physical, evil, on the other side you have spirit and good. Um, He will give us two lists. We'll look at the first today, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And there is a temptation to say, well, look at the works of the flesh, they are all physical sins, and look at the fruit of the spirit, they're all sort of spiritual things that occur. Um, Read the list again, and I think you will see this is not the case. It's not a matter of material versus non-material. Remember in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Um, So, 
I can see where the translators said, you know, if we put flesh, people are going to think body, and we don't want to do that, so we'll put the sinful nature. Um, What Paul is speaking of is that which is natural to human beings. That, in a sense, that is natural to human nature. After the fall, that nature, that natural thing, has become twisted almost beyond recognition. But before Adam and Eve sinned, and I mentioned this last week, in themselves, and not just the body, but who they were as embodied creatures was not sufficient. They did not intuitively know, oh, this is right and this is wrong. They had to be told. Because God creates us, we are dependent. We need instruction. We need revelation. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we are told, this if nothing else, that human beings are made by the Creator. We are dependent by nature. We require instruction. And so, even though Adam was without sin, and we think, boy, if I was without sin, I would just know everything. I would know exactly what to do. Um, No, we find someone who needs to be told what to do and what not to do. Not to digress too much, but Genesis 2 tells us much more than that. It tells us about the place of work, of vocation. It tells us about the relationship between man and woman, the origins of marriage, and the significance of... I'd say the significance and the importance of beauty. Uh, Eden was, in fact, a place of learning, but it was a beautiful place. But we find in creation the human being has a body with a human nature which, which requires instructions from the Creator. If Adam had never sinned, we would still need to be told by the Spirit of God what it is that we should do, what it means to be human. Well, we know that Adam and Eve were told, but they disobeyed. What it means to be human now has become almost unrecognizable. It's twisted almost beyond belief. But we are still dependent, and we still are in need of instruction and revelation. The problem is, now, unlike Adam and Eve before they sinned, we are in rebellion. That God says, do this, and we're like, no. Don't do this. I want to. We're like, you know, like spoiled children. We are in rebellion against what God has told us. And what God has told us, by the way, isn't arbitrary. It is, okay, this is what a human being is. This is what a human being should do. He knows better than anyone because he made us. The law was given so that we might have instructions as to how we are, li- we are to live. But as Paul has made clear, we lack the ability... We lack the ability to obey these instructions. We must remember that we are not simply human. We are fallen. We are sinful human beings. Our nature is so different from what was intended that, again, it's almost beyond recognition. It is when the Spirit of God comes and lives within us that we can begin to live as we were intended to. And so we find in verse number 18, if you'll look, Paul says, if you are led by the Spirit. And in verse number 16, live by the Spirit. Verse number 25, keep in step with the Spirit. This is what it means to be human. This is how we are supposed to live. God is redeeming us from the abyss 
in which our sinful nature has taken over. Let's read verses 16 to the end of the chapter. We won't look at all of them today, but to get a sense of the whole passage. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I will read flesh in the place of the sinful nature. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so, they do not, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. As I said earlier, the contrast here, the issue here is not material versus non-material. The question is, where does your true identity lie? We're given two options. Either your identity is in the flesh or it is in the spirit, and these stand in opposition to each other. Thus we read in verse number 16, So I say, live by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. To be honest, I'm not sure why the translators in 1984 chose to use the word live, or the verb live, to live by the Spirit. Other translations, um, including the more recent NIV, have walk by the Spirit or walk in the Spirit. And this connects us with verse number 25. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. You'll notice that the first part of verse number 25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The word that Paul uses here in verse number 16 is, in Greek, peripatheo, it usually means to walk. But it is in the present tense, and it indicates that Paul is speaking of an ongoing action. Let us continue to walk in the Spirit. And perhaps this is where uh, the translators, why they went in this direction. It speaks of how we live our lives. We are to walk in the Spirit. As embodied human beings, we have two options. We can either walk in the Spirit, walk as God would have us to. He made us, this is the way human beings are supposed to live. Or we can gratify the desires of the flesh, our human nature which has fallen. At least two questions come to mind, at least for me, in looking through this. The first is, can't we do both? Can't we walk in the Spirit and gratify the desires of the flesh? Paul says no. Look at verse number 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. You can't do both. And the differences are spelled out as he gives us the two lists, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. The second question that comes up is, if I walk in the spirit... Does that mean I will automatically not do the works of the flesh? If I say, I choose to walk in the Spirit, does it mean that I will no longer do the things I should not do? 
The answer is no. But this is something that is not easily answered or understood. It's something I think that is unfolded as the passage develops. I will say that we are called to obey. And if we are told to obey, this implies that this is not an automatic response. Oh, I'm in the Spirit. I will automatically do what is right and I will not disobey. No. Um, you have to choose to obey and to choose to disobey. It's not automatic. It's part of what we've looked at in the past few weeks, the already, not yet. I have the Spirit of God within me. I am to walk in the Spirit, and yet, at the same time, I find myself doing the things I should not do. I'm already a child of God, but that work is not completed yet, and therefore I struggle with sin. We're still marked by the fact that we are fallen human beings. We are still in the flesh. Look again, if you would, at verse number 17. It is the flesh who needs the Spirit, He who gives instruction and revelation, He who is the life of God within us. But the flesh is in rebellion against the Creator. By very definition, the flesh wants, dare I say, the opposite of what God knows is best for us. And the Spirit who knows what is best for us will obviously speak differently than that that part of us which is in rebellion against God. Here is God, through His Spirit, saying, live this way. This is me in rebellion. Obviously, they are going to be in conflict. They are going to tell me two different things. As a result, at the end of verse number 17, so that you do not do what you want. It's the already, not yet. I, already, I want to do the right things. And yet, in many, many times, not yet do I do the things that I should the flesh desires to do something different. It's been suggested that the word desire here is chosen deliberately from Genesis chapter 4 when God spoke to Cain. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The fallen flesh desires that which is contrary to what is right what the Spirit intends for us, what is appropriate for us as human beings. But what happens if I don't do what is right? I know something is right, but I don't do it. This is when I struggle in my flesh as a fallen human being to do what God wants me to do. Does this mean I'm kicked out? I'm out of the family of God, out of the kingdom? This is where verse number 18 comes in. Because I think otherwise, verse 18 sort of might seem out of place. But Paul seeks to answer this concern. Paul, if I, do, if I commit sin, am I no longer a child of God? His answer has two parts. Negatively, our acceptance, that is, being a part of the family of God, does not depend on us keeping the law. That's why if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Remember, the law says you break one, that's it. You've broken them all. You're condemned. You're cursed. We are not under the law. We are the children of God, even though we still commit sin. Positively, he tells us that we have instruction, we have resources. We are led by the Spirit of God. So, there are times when we struggle and we don't know what the right thing to do is. The Spirit instructs us. Other times we know what the right thing to do is, but 
boy, there's a real struggle because we want to do what is wrong. We have the Spirit of God to lead us and to give us grace. We are not under law. We are not cursed. We are the children of God. But we still commit sin. Well, in verses 19, 20, and 21, Paul deals with the works of the flesh. And as one author puts it, Paul is never content with mere generalizations when it comes to sin. Sins have names. And in fact, that's what he does in these three verses. It's not an exhaustive list. And in fact, if you look in verse number 21, he says, an envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. This sort of leaves the door open. There are other things. He's not giving us an exhaustive list. But here he gives us 15 sins, which may be categorized in a number of ways. Following the lead of others, I would suggest four categories. Sexual sins, one might call religious sins or ritual sins. Social sins, sins against my neighbor. And drinking sins, uh, drunkenness and orgies. First of all, the sexual sins. And it's interesting and yet disturbing at the same time that Paul begins here. Um, you know, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. By the way, in his other list, if you look at his other letters, when he gives us a list of sins, generally speaking, sexual sins are at the top of the list. But we find this in Jesus as well, by the way. In Mark chapter 7, he mentions sexual immorality before he mentions theft and murder. And this isn't a matter of prudishness um, that somehow focuses on people's sexuality or, or their, what they do sexually. I think it's something more fundamental and something incredibly important. It gives us insight into the nature of sin itself. And not just sexual sin, but all sin. Sin, by definition, seeks self-gratification rather than neighborly love. Rather than loving somebody as I love myself, I love myself. And I will take what I want for what I believe to be my own pleasure. Sexual deviance of every kind, and Paul uses the general term sexual immorality, is by nature unloving. Because it's all about me. It's not about my neighbor. It's not about someone else. It's about me. And I find it striking that things such as fornication or adultery or even homosexuality can be described in, can be described in terms of love, of making love. But in fact, it is self-love. It is self-gratification. And Paul begins his list when he talks about the works of the flesh because this is what we are about as human beings. It's all about us. When the serpent said to Eve, look, this will make you wise. And she looked at it and she thought, that looks good. And she took it for herself. This is the nature of sin. And that's why Paul begins where he does. Debauchery and sensuality, um, as the ESV has it, point to defilement and lawlessness. They are contrary to what God intended for us when it comes to sexuality. This is why Genesis 2 is so important. It tells us, human beings, you have a body, and this is how you're supposed to live your lives when it comes to sexuality. And this we learn from the one who made us in his own image. The second category are religious or ritual sins. If sexual sins have as their essence self-gratification, 
it makes sense that Paul moves on to the next category, that is, idolatry and witchcraft or sorcery. Idolatry is, in the general sense, putting something in my life in the place of God. And sexual sins, self-gratification, idolatry is, I get to play the role of God. I get to choose what will be God in my life. And it may be something that God has given me. It may be my spouse, or a child, or a job, or an ability, a gift. But suddenly that thing becomes inflated beyond its original place, and it comes between God and me. It takes God's place in my life. That is the nature of idolatry. And yet, I think you could make the case that as Paul writes to the Galatians, he's writing to people who used to literally have idols or images. Um, in Galatia, as well as all of Asia Minor, idolatry was the norm for pagan worship. But whether it is literal or figurative, it is the way of the flesh. The flesh that is in rebellion against God wants to take the place of God. And even if we put someone else up and say, this is my God, I'm the one who chose. I'm the one who made the call. I'm the one who said, this is God. And I think at its heart, idolatry is about me. It's all about me. I chose who would be my God. Idolatry we get. The sorcery or witchcraft seems like a strange choice. I found this interesting that the word in Greek is pharmakeia from which we get pharmacy. And so it's been suggested that there is a use of drugs in public worship. Sorcery also implies the use of magic. And magic is, in fact, the equivalent of technology in religious practices. It represents the ways in which we think we can get what we want if we follow a series of steps or techniques. If you allow me to digress here a bit, um, when I was a student at UCLA, one of the professors gave a lecture on magic versus religion. That magic, he defined it as human behavior, behavior which is a form of religious deviance. I find that fascinating in light of what we've just looked at in terms of sexual immorality and sexual deviance. This is religious deviance, <clears throat> in which individual goals are sought by means not sanctioned by traditional religion. So, magic has a very specific goal that one is trying to reach. In religion, the goal is in the direction of the general welfare. In magic, we have an attitude of manipulation. This is how I get what I want. Religion speaks of submission to the divine will, as Gia read to us today, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Magic is about individual ends. Religion is about group values. Magic deals with instrumentality, how I can get what I want for me. In religion, we worship God for who he is, not for what he can give us. It's not about what he can do for us. In magic, it's quite impersonal. The only relationship that exists is between the professional, the person who knows the secrets, and the client, if you wish. You go to a person who knows how to do sorcery and you say, this is what I want that's the extent of relationship. In religion, we have a relationship with God. He is our Father, and we are His children. And our faith is built around that relationship. The magician and the client go through the process as individuals. There's no real relationship. It is relatively unemotional. 
as you simply do the things that you're supposed to do. Strikingly, the magician decides when you're going to start, whereas in the Christian faith, we follow a calendar. Today is the Lord's day. It's not something we chose. God chose us, and this is when and where we are to worship God as a congregation. I think you can summarize magic as being individualistic, pragmatic, non-relational, and goal-directed. In short, everything that our culture celebrates. And sadly, the way that oftentimes the gospel is presented today as being individualistic, pragmatic, non-relational, and goal-directed. The third category of sins are social sins, sins against our neighbors. Hatred or hostility, discord, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, or as one Translation has it, temper tantrums, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. The King James has one more, it has murders. All of these represent the opposite of what we find in verse number 14. Look, if you would, at verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. But my flesh does not want to love my neighbor as myself. And so, if I walk in the flesh, the works I will do are hatred, discord, jealousy, temper tantrums, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. When I do these things, I am walking in the way of the flesh, that is, the fallen flesh. The fourth category are called drinking sins, drunkenness, and orgies. In Scripture, we find that drinking is not prohibited. It's not against God's commandment or instructions to drink alcohol. What is discouraged is drunkenness. And I, I want to be careful here. I would almost go so far as to say that the Scripture does not forbid drunkenness as such. Um, Paul does tell us not to be drunk with wine. The real danger is, if you get drunk you will do things you should not do. And therefore, that's, that is what you need to be careful of. But when it comes to wine and alcoholic beverages, these are gifts from God. Psalm 104. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth, fruit, or bring, bring forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. When we come to the New Testament, we read that the first miracle that Jesus performed was a changing of water into wine. And by the way, if you read it, it was good wine. Would we expect anything else? And yet, the tradition I come out of, people have done gymnastics to somehow get around this, that somehow, no, Jesus would not. How could he do something that could cause people to get drunk? Using that rationality, we should never eat again because, in fact, you might overeat. We are not to get drunk. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, Paul tells the Ephesians. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. One finds that drunkenness leads to self, the loss of self-control. Debauchery is to act in less than a human way. But the Spirit, if we are filled with the Spirit, we will live as human beings are supposed to. When we are drunk, we become, 
I want to be careful when I say less than human. Um, we are acting as less than human. We're still fully human, but we are acting as less than human. When we have the spirit of God, then in fact, we should live as human beings, as God intended. Alcohol dehumanizes or has the potential to dehumanize, while it is the spirit who humanizes us, who causes us to be the people we should be. Okay, that explains the drunkenness, but what about the last, number 15 on this list that Paul gives us, orgies? This is something that may occur due to the abuse of alcohol. And you might say, well, yeah, that's true, but there are other sins as well. Paul mentions them in Romans, such as violence, that when people get drunk, they get violent. Well, Paul began his list with sexual immorality, and he ends with orgies. In, in a sense, we've come full circle, in which I think Paul is trying to tell us that sin is a vicious cycle, from which there is no escape apart from the grace of God and the work of the Spirit. So this section ends, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mentioned several weeks ago that verse number 12 is perhaps one of the, one of the most shocking statements in Paul's writings. I think perhaps we should look at what he writes here in verse number 21 as even more shocking. It's not the first time the Galatians have heard this. Paul told them these things when he was with them. But in light of what he's written in this letter thus far, one might wonder if Paul is suggesting that being a part of the family of God is based on our obedience rather than on what God has done through Jesus Christ. Paul has said we don't, we're not under the law, but now Paul is telling us don't do these things. It seems as though Paul is setting up a second law. I mean, hasn't he tried to make the point over and over again in this letter that one is not made right in the sight of God, one does not become a child of God, that one is not united with Christ, the crucified Messiah, based on what one has done or what one does? How can Paul now say that disobedience banishes you from the kingdom of God? I would suggest to you the following. First of all, Paul is not saying that anyone who commits any or all of these sins cannot be included in the kingdom or family of God. If that were the case, no one would be in the kingdom of God. No one can claim innocence from all of these sins. There are certain of these sins we may not have committed. But I think when you go through the list, we cannot say, well, I've not done any of those. What Paul has in mind here are those who refuse to repent, who refuse to say, oh, that, that's wrong, and, and that I do that. Those who refuse to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it, these will not be included in the kingdom of God. Those who continue to commit these sins with no sense of conscience are not a part of God's kingdom. There is forgiveness for us, for those who repent. Secondly, I would remind you of what I said last week, that freedom is not simply freedom from something, it is freedom to something. We are called, we are liberated to obey God's commands, and we are to demonstrate our faith by obeying Him. As we saw in the book of James, faith without works is dead. But thirdly, I would suggest to you that Paul is trying to tell us something. Sin is a serious matter. I think Paul wants to make that clear. 
We, I, I want to be careful that I don't somehow lessen what Paul is saying here. Sin is wrong. And if you think you can just sort of indulge and sort of lather yourself in sin and just enjoy it and think, well, that's okay, I'm a child of God, then you really have misunderstood how evil sin is. And you have misunderstood what it means to be in the flesh fallen versus walking in the spirit. As Paul writes this, he gives us two lists. The Lord willing, we'll look at the second list next week. And he tells us, he sort of takes us through the process of what happens when someone becomes a child of God. They become a part of the family of God through faith in Jesus. By the way, you'll notice in verse number 24, Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we set that aside. And he's told the Galatians in chapter 4 that those who belong to Jesus have the Spirit of God in them. Here's the process as Paul presents it here in this letter. We come into this world, we are born into this world in the condition that Paul calls flesh. We are born into human families with ethnic and territorial identities. We're not all the same. We're born into particular families with particular ethnicities and particular practices. And each one finds within himself or herself particular desires. I think we all have the desire to sin. I don't think we all have the same desires when it comes to sins. That is, that some people, a particular sin has no appeal to them whatsoever. And then for some, this same sin almost seems to have a hold of them and will not let them go. We have all kinds of desires in us. And if we let them loose, if we give in to them, they will produce in us the works that Paul has listed for us. By the way, a society in which people live this way is unlikely to be a happy or a thriving place. More than that, people who live this way have no place in God's kingdom. God has established his kingdom and called us to be a part of it. But if we choose to live in the flesh and follow its desires, then we have no place in God's family. Which makes sense because these are opposites. If you're living over here, why would you want to go over here? If you're living according to the fallen flesh, then why, in fact, would you want to be a part of the kingdom of God? It doesn't make sense. This is not how God intended for us to live. When he created human beings, when he created the world, this is not how he intended things to be. But with the announcing of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, God's spirit begins to do his work in our lives and we are renewed. It isn't the canceling out of the flesh. And by the way, I don't know if you remember, but the promise of forgiveness we had today from the book of Ezekiel. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Wait a minute. If flesh is sinful, why would God give us a heart of flesh? Because flesh is human as God intended. And he will give us his spirit as well to direct us to live our lives the way God intended us to be. God doesn't want us to be inhuman. He doesn't want us to be superhuman. He wants us to be human and to obey Him. And so, 
through Jesus we are being renewed, recreated, being created into what we were supposed to be in the first place if sin hadn't messed everything up. And so in this recreation, as Paul describes it here, we find death and life. Death is, we say, this which defined me as a person with its evil practices, I am saying no to this. This is not who I am. And we say yes to life, life in the spirit. And now I, I don't get rid of the body. It's not as though as soon as I become a Christian, the body dies. No, now the spirit if we will listen, will direct us and say, Damon, this is how a human being is supposed to live. A human being is not made for sexuality or immoral, uh, sexual immorality. A human being is made for love. And not for hatred, but for peace. Not for dissension, but for joy. This is how you are living in the flesh. This is how God wants you to live in the spirit. The Lord willing, we will look at this in more detail next week as we look at the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, even after all this time, it's still amazing how much we want to be in charge. We want to decide what makes us human and what doesn't. And we want to decide what aspects of you we will follow and those we will ignore. We want to create our own gods, our own idols. And in many ways we, in our sinfulness, seek to manipulate you to get from you the things that we want rather than submitting to you the Creator the one who made us, the one who knows what is best for us. How it must grieve you to see how twisted human beings have become. And yet, what joy it must bring you to see your spirit working in our lives. Slowly but surely, recreating us, remaking us in the image that you intended for us. On our own, we cannot do this. We're incapable. We can only do that which is wrong. But by your grace and your spirit, we can be recreated and be people as you made us to be. I pray that by your spirit, we would think on these things. We would not be hearers only, but doers of the word. We would take these things to heart. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.